Welcome to the Disaster Tough Podcast, where we talk about emergency management by emergency managers. We share stories, lessons, and tips to help keep you moving forward. I am John Scardina, the host. I share my experience as a former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters over the past decade. I now lead a private emergency management firm called Doberman Emergency Management, that focuses on emergency planning, mitigation, and response. This podcast is brought to you by L3 Harris. L3 Harris is an amazing company. They provide communications for first responders all over the world. They created the Beyond Push to Talk app that allows your team to communicate between mobile devices and radios through encrypted lines, which makes it so much easier for the team. Even better, they are offering the Beyond app at no cost to agencies for a limited time. You have to check it out. L3Harris.com slash responder support or click on the show notes for details. Welcome back to the podcast show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. We're going to be talking to Ashley Loria Golden today. So excited to talk to her. I know her from Georgetown, my, those Georgetown days where we both got our master's there in emergency and disaster management. Ashley has so much experience, just a wealth of knowledge. She was a paramedic there in Atlanta, and she did a lot of training. In fact, she's a paramedic field training officer there. She's also been with the state. In fact, her last role was with the state in hazard mitigation. And then she switched recently to the deputy director of emergency management for Forth County, Georgia. Wow, just so much experience. Again, one of my great friends, Ashley, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm super excited to be here and get a chance to talk with you and catch up and let's do this. Yes, I'm so excited for this. Man, my listeners are absolutely going to love this show because you have so much experience, just a wide range of experience, again, from that tactical level, you know, paramedic response to the state and even your current role in the county. Those emergency management perspectives, again, just a huge range and what I think we're really talking about when we talk about your specific experience and why it's so important for my listeners. You know, I talk to so many emergency managers and there's sometimes a disconnect between those different levels of emergency management. And what you can really do is, is to tie in that those different levels of, of local response uh, as emergency manager with that response experience. And what I think this episode will really highlight is the combination and the... Um, the need for uh, uh, both experience and training. And so taking that perspective, when you were a paramedic and you were thinking about getting into um, emergency management, was that when you looked at Georgetown or were you already practicing emergency management um, from that planning piece already? That was my first formal, I guess, plunge into emergency management. I've been doing a lot of research after I graduated college, you know, back then, and you know, it doesn't seem like that long ago, but it was 2010. So it seems like almost a different world, I guess, at this point, emergency management really hadn't started to emerge as the, you know, individual discipline it is today. It was definitely a time when public health was a major focus with a little bit of disaster preparedness thrown in there. And I knew kind of of what emergency management was, but there wasn't a lot of formal things to go into at the time. So fast forward five years from when we went to Georgetown, that had evolved so much that I had done some specialty training classes and I started to do some things um, for the ambulance service I was working with at the time for some of their disaster preparedness for some of our individual department plans. But Georgetown was the first really big jump I took outside of just some local courses and local training into the emergency management sphere. Really interesting. So that that begs the question then, because uh, I think you and I have, because of Georgetown and the the experiences we had there and the training we had there, uh, looking at how much the field is changing and developing. I mean, you're talking about a rapid change even from 2010 to 2015, 16, and I think it's making major jumps. I think the pandemic is causing that, right? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. So. In, in your perspective, then, from having that training and, and having that experience and seeing how much it's changed, what do you think is the next evolution of emergency management? I think the next evolution will be growing 
even more as a discipline and away from being a buzzword. And I think also for a lot of communities, because emergency management is so vastly different depending on where you live, where you work. Being in Georgia, you know, I'm fortunate to have worked in the city of Atlanta, you know, to be in the metro Atlanta market now. But in a lot of areas, emergency management is still just a tack on to the fire department, to the sheriff's office, where it's kind of a checkbox that the community feels like they need to fulfill. So they still kind of just fold that role under where, you know, for the longest time, I feel like that's how it was known. And certain areas have been able to spring ahead and really bring it into it being its own governmental entity, being its own, not even if it has to be a separate agency, but just identifying that emergency management is not the same as the fire service. It's not the same as the police, you know, a police department, you know, it's not the same as public health. So I think our next shift will see how interdependent it can be on things that do happen in the fire service, police service, public health, but seeing how it kind of wraps all those things together and just continuing to grow in that. Because I feel like there's still so much that's misunderstood about emergency management that even though people now at least know it's a thing, they still aren't quite sure, you know, the whole breadth of what it does. And I think, you know, the next five years, especially like you mentioned with what we're seeing from the pandemic, bringing it so much more out to the forefront, it'll finally start to get some of that recognition and right it's due so that kind of the rest of the society that's not been as up and as awesome as we are in loving the field mm. <laughs> will get to really understand and experience it as well. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, you're talking probably pre 9-11, even DHS, pre-DHS, the idea of emergency management might have been more of like those retired fire and police who, hey, I, I did my career here and now I'm going to take this cushion job and I'll write your plan because you require a plan. Um, and But they, because of that, they not to discredit them, I mean, when they go in there, they say, hey, I have a I have a fire background, so we're going to talk about evacuation routes. We're going to be talking about, um, you know, mustering locations. We're going to be talking about the things I know. And police is obviously safety and security. And so they, they, they really just focus on those different pieces. Now with schools like Georgetown and now with the dis discipline changing to being more data-focused, we're learning how uh, interdependent uh, not just those, those individual pieces are, but taking that from an opinion-based analysis to a data-based analysis. And I think that's what really like uh, Doberman Emergency Management Group, um, the company that I own, that's what we're focusing on. We're focusing on that data piece. We're focusing on um, making expert analysis off that data. So like excellent point there. Um, and so if, if you're talking about you and I gr growing up in this field or growing into this field as it's shifting dramatically, and you're, no, you're noting that, hey, like, this is becoming a more serious discipline. What inspired you then to switch over from that paramedic side to a more of an emergency management side? I think the core mission of what I've always enjoyed is staying the same, and that's helping people. I mean, that's 110% why I got into EMS to begin with and just to have that community connection. Really was wanting to do things on a larger scale for a larger part of the community. And, you know, I love every part of being a paramedic with getting that one-on-one -on -one patient interaction and that, you know, quick satisfaction of being able to, you know, do something in that moment to, to ease someone's day or to, you know, as cliche as it sounds, sometimes there really are times where you save a life. Other times you just help calm a stressful situation. But the longer I did it, I also saw ways that you know, even EMS departments needed to be better equipped for when things impacted them. And a lot of that was kind of missing and that it was just, well, when it comes up, we'll deal with it. And, you know, that was, I got that response a lot for things, you know, that we take for granted in emergency management as being more basic, like tornado warnings. Every single, you know, working in Atlanta, you do get tornado warnings when you're out there on the ambulance. And yeah. we weren't station assigned. And so, Something as simple as, well, what are we going to do with our crews? Because newsflash, we have had a tornado go through downtown Atlanta. Um, mm. You know, that does happen and can happen again. That, you know, the whole, well, we'll just figure it out when the, the sirens go off. You know, we always figure out something just really wasn't, wasn't good enough. And it wasn't that I wasn't working with incredibly skilled leaders. It's, they just couldn't, you know, they, don't, they had grown up in a world that, they had done it the way they'd done it and it's going to be okay. They weren't looking for that forward mission and that, you know, looking into the future and future planning. 
but being able to move into emergency management and better equip the whole community to be ready, not just us on the ambulance was very appealing. And, you know, part of it too, I've been a little weather buff ever since I was a kid, you know, growing up watching the Weather Channel religiously and reading all the tornado chaser books. I've always had that weather bug. So not just the healthcare side, but getting to pull in some of that, that weather interest and better weather prepared community was really fascinating to me. So as I spent more time on the ambulance and I saw emergency management growing and really got to understand what it did that, you know, aligned with some of the things I loved from my time on the ambulance, but would give me a space to also get to work with other parts of the community. That really kind of gave me that itch to, to make the jump and, and kind of change chapters to, to be able to, to function in a new role in the community while still helping the community. Uh, for everybody who's listening, I think you just heard the pitch of why we like Ashley so much. What you, a, a great emergency managers care about people and want to impact their community and look for ways to impact their community in a positive way. And so the fact that you're, you're already... Uh, in our mind, uh, very highly trained, highly experienced as a paramedic. And you say, hey, how can I take these tools? How can I look at these systems and do even more? And so that, like, that's just huge. And uh, you said so many things that I want, I want to talk about. But one, one big thing, I don't even know if you knew this, uh, when we were coming up with the name Doberman Emergency Management, uh, you remember me calling you and I, you know, I pitched you the name. And again, oh, yeah. yeah. So I, I contacted like three or four people. You were the first one outside of my spouse. Uh, I, I contacted you and I said, uh, what do you think of this? And after I heard your response and you said, Hey, Doberman's great. Go with it. Uh, talking about trying to pull in excellent people who have great backgrounds. I respected your opinion so much, even after like the other people were like giving me, gave me their opinions. I didn't even care. I was like, Ashley said it's good. <laughs> so you actually were the green light officially for the name. Um, so if our listeners like the name or if they don't like the name, we can blame you. <laughs> I will take responsibility because I think it's an awesome name and that you're doing awesome things. So that's Thank their you. problem. And, uh, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, no, sorry. It, it is the, it is the image we want. We want safety and security. We want to impact our community. And uh, I, I do think it's a great image for that. So again, thank you for that. Um, so talking about impacting communities, talking about that experience, Let's back up just a little bit because you told me a really cool story about having to help out your community and having to put your own feelings aside uh, with, uh, with a car wreck and, and an ambulance. Can you tell us a little bit more about that story? Oh, yes. The infamous purple scion story. So it gets brought up like that. Purple because thigh. Well, there was that, that. Ironically, the accident happened right around the time that Train had that song where they referenced a crappy purple scion car in mm. the song. So yep. none of my friends let me live it down because it really was like a purple-ish color scion <laughs> that hit us. So That's awesome. Was, the timing was amazing. But yes, we were, uh, I was on shift. I was still an ENT at the time. I was actually almost to the end of paramedic school, which is a super stressful time. So I was mm. finishing up all my clinical training requirements, you know, all of my full-time shift work, the, the paperwork that has to be done, preparing for this, you know, huge national registry certification exam. So there's a lot going on already. And uh, we'd had a, a pretty good shift so far and we were just driving from one post to another. So the system I worked for at the time, we weren't stationed assigned. You'd have to move from one area of the county to another based off of an algorithm that was predetermined on call volume. So mm -hmm. as units came in service, units copied calls, dispatch would move you around to cover the most important zones to try to decrease response times. Super popular system um, for mm -hmm. assigning ambulances. So we had been assigned one post, then got bounced to copy another just because another unit went in service. So I was joked that if dispatch hadn't put me on the road, it would have never happened. But well, the algorithm worked, right? <laughs> Right. I mean, they That's sent you the active area. <laughs> <laughs> well, we definitely found the active area. So we were driving, you know, we didn't have our lights on. We weren't in route mm. to a call. We'd actually just left the hospital. We had a, a third rider. So we actually also had a student with us who was in the mm. back and uh, partners typing away on the computer, doing the paperwork. We get up and this is a fairly large intersection in the area that I was working and we had the green light and this little purple car turns left from two stopped lanes of turn lane traffic, just turns from a straight lane right into us. Apparently the drive cam oh, footage is hysterical because I was singing along to Carrie Underwood one second and then I'm 
That's hilarious. Squeaking like a squirrel the next. But uh, yeah, this lady, she was not paying attention and, and ran the light and hit us pretty hard. Uh, you know, we thankfully were all wearing our seatbelts. We were shaken up. But after it happened, you know, we hopped out and wanted to check on her. And so that was the most important part because one, it's we're in a much bigger vehicle than she is. And, and two, for her to run a red light, there could have been something medically wrong that caused that to happen, you know, before the accident itself with now any injuries. So, you know, we hopped right out, figured out where we were, let dispatch know what happened. But, you know, we checked on her. Thankfully, she wasn't severely hurt. Uh, but we even got her packaged for transport. So this is, you know, for any of you out there who are medically trained, who know all of the the backboarding and C-spine protocol drama. This was back during the day when everybody got backboarded and, you know, she hit hard enough where it would have been important just in case to protect oh. her back. But by the time any other unit showed up to check on us, we already had her backboarded and, and ready to go. So, you know, for that, it, it you know, there, there was no time to get mad. And as much as, you know, part of you wants to be like, lady, what are you doing? You know, that's not the right answer because again, for something like that to happen, you don't know what, what caused her to run the red light and you want to make sure she's okay. So, Thankfully, we all were okay, but it was, it was a little while. It was definitely, we were the, we'd just gotten new ambulances too, like a whole new fleet, like a whole new oh, make no. and model. And we were the first unit to total one of the ambulances. <laughs> nice. Well done. <laughs> well, it's always good to be number one. Sometimes, uh, you know, it's uni unique ways, right? Go big or go home. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so that is a great metaphor though, because in emergency management, it's such a highly collaborative environment that we meet other people with different cultures, different backgrounds, different levels of training. We have a lot of volunteers who are thrown into a role that they've never done before in a disaster, right? All of a sudden they're the PIO and they, you know, they were doing HR before uh, and they say something on the news that is just baseless, baseless information, or they, they do something that uh, feels like they're running a red light, right? And it runs into, runs into our mission. And so how do you do, I mean, you kind of talked about it a little bit, but how do you deal with that as you're dealing with a highly collaborative environment where sometimes we run the red light, sometimes other people run the red light? Um, how do you separate that emotion from the actual work? I think a lot of it is remembering that we're all human. So as much as we want to think that we're going to be a perfect 100% of the time, you know, we've all run the red light or had the run light mm. red on us. And so remembering that, like, I mean, you nailed it with saying that we come from different backgrounds and different experiences. And, uh, you know, a lot of the ways it's helped me to work with different folks, whether it was trying to help patients on the ambulance or in emergency now, is that you really do have to kind of get that outside yourself mindset and understand those that you're working with or that, you know, those who are coming into your space as you're working together, where you may not always agree with it, but if you can understand you know, yes, they have a different thought process than me, but I can see how they reach this conclusion. One, it'll help you work more effectively with them. And two, it also helps you more effectively, if it's someone you're going to be working with long-term, coach them on being better next time. So if you know that this is someone that is going to be in your collaborative environment and, you know, you want to make sure that you're not having these red light moments keep happening, the onus is also on you, to, you know, as the subject matter ex expert, to, to help them and to be able to, you know, to get on their level and work through it with them. Because again, you know, it is highly emotional because we're human, but we each bring that little good part of ourselves that's different and unique that can, you know, help the others along the way. As an emergency manager, I want to put out fires. I don't want to start fires. And that includes relationships with other people. So like never burn a bridge if you don't have to burn that bridge, right? Um, Absolutely. Another th great thing you're talking about is the different levels. And you have made, as noted before, you've made switches within emergency management. And so can you just talk to us or talk us through that process of what are the differences uh, between the tactical level, like that response level, working at the state and now working at the county? What are those differences and what are those nuances that a, a successful emergency manager would need to do to adjust to that environment? Absolutely. So... You know, one thing that I'm very grateful for is that being in all of these different spaces, they've all been really rewarding get to getting to learn all these different sides. So mm. 
for me, you know, especially as emergency management progresses, I think that it's incredibly important for anyone going into emergency management to have some kind of boots on the ground tactical experience. You know, we're very fortunate that now kids coming out of high school into college, grad school, there are these formal emergency management programs that didn't exist before, like we talked about for, you know, necessarily for us back in our day. Um, but they do miss out on a level of that community interaction and that people interaction where when you know at a higher level you're having to make plans and decisions you really kind of have to understand the language of those who are going to be on the ground orchestrating it because a lot of what we do in emergency management whether it's state or local it's really still being carried out by the boots on the ground the tactical responders so after having been a first responder for so long First responders absolutely speak their own language. I kind of joke that it's like the biggest secret society hidden in plain sight because if, you know, if you haven't done the work, it's very hard to truly understand it from the outside looking in. As much live rescue as you watch, as much, you know, 911 or any of those other shows that you watch, it's very different when you walk in those shoes. And I'm not saying that everyone has to go be a firefighter, be EMT or be, you know, police officer, but availing yourself to if you can do ride-alongs or to really to get to know your guys and gals really well is really important because, you know, there's so much wonderful emergency management education out there. And a lot of this also plays out true when you're learning how to do things for being an EMS, whether it's an EMT or paramedic, you learn this amazing set of skills and this amazing breakdown on this is how you approach it, you know, from the IS classes to other specialty trainings. And then a major event happens and almost nothing goes the way that you planned it. So if you've never been in a role where you've had something tactically, for lack of a better way to say it, kind of blow up in your face or kind of go six ways sideways, yeah. you know, if you've only ever known it by the, the book or by the training, it, it's gonna be harder than in those moment to moment decisions. And also a lot of times too, like I said, when you then have an event happen and you want these guys and gals to be working with you, you know, the way the field is still right now, a lot of them give you more credit and listen to you more if they know that you have some kind of connection back to having been in the field yourself. There's still a lot of that where, you know, as awesome as the academic side and the data side as emergency management is and needs to be there for being able to get the job done in the moment, there's a lot of weight that's still put on street cred when all the agencies are interacting together. Um, then yeah. kind of the difference between the local and the state um, I was fortunate the division I worked with in the state was awesome. You know, the state itself does incredibly hard work with a much smaller group of people than you'd expect to be in a state office getting that much work completed. I know about I, that from Georgia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, my gosh. It's incredible. And, you know, I'm, you know, still friends with a lot of folks I worked with at the state. Um, but something I saw for folks that have asked me kind of the difference between the two and why, because a lot of times folks will kind of go from tactical to local to state to federal. And I've kind of gone in a slightly different direction. The state is excellent for folks that want to be more specialized. You know, a lot of the positions, you know, you become that real subject matter expert in one division, which is incredibly important because that's what your local communities need when they come to you, is that this person knows X, Y, and Z about everything that I need their assistance with, you know. But long-term, depending on what you like better, the local, definitely you have your hand in a lot of other buckets versus just, just hazard mitigation or just public assistance or just you know radiological preparedness or just training and planning. When you're at the local level, you're the one having to deal with all those items and you know making sure that all of them are being adequately handled by your department and then working directly with your um, other county or city agencies to get them done. So that's kind of an interesting dichotomy of you know, when you're at the state, a lot of times you'll get asked a lot of questions that fall outside that subject matter expertise that you're, you're building. But when you're local, you really, they're expecting you to still be the subject matter expertise on, you know, on all the different. <laughs> yeah. You're different the, you're the emergency manager. Like right. you're all the roles. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And one, uh, one similarity, one similarity that's also dissimilar, but it was interesting to see is for the role I fulfilled at the state doing hazard mitigation grants, I worked with a bunch of different communities. So while the time I was doing grants, I worked with some of the metro Atlanta area counties. I worked with, you know, from the most rural to the North Georgia mountains to all the way down to, you know, the complete Southwest corner of Georgia. Sounds like a song. <laughs> it does. From the North, I don't know. 
I can I can laugh at my own joke. I don't know if you can hear that. I, I feel like a country artist has yeah. either already made that or you know now is going to rip off our idea and make another great. Yeah, we better get a, we better get a cut from that. Yeah, exactly. Got to got to copyright that idea. Uh, you're working with all these different groups, and they're all vastly different in their own capability, in their own understanding, in their own expectations, and their needs. So it really mm. teaches you a lot of how to be malleable working with different groups. And that definitely translated over with going local that even in one county community, the departments can be very different in terms of, you know, their understanding of what we do in emergency management, their relationship interaction with, you know, what they've done so far with the department, what they expect moving forward. So that was just very interesting to see how it's similar in that you have all those differences, but it's just kind of put into a bigger scale with the state because it's literally whole different communities versus departments, but it definitely teaches you how to be a team player in, in any kind of situation. Yeah. I think that I think being a team player, oh my gosh, so important for emergency management to figure out like how to work with other people. Um, again, a lot of really great comments. My, my one thought on the response, uh, it is always easy to tell. Um, ver- I mean, we're talking about milliseconds who has response experience and who does not. And uh, that, that level of stress that comes with it. And there are a lot of people who either feel like they, because of medical reasons, persons with disabilities, or for whatever reason, don't think they can do that tactical, tactical level. And I think you just highlighted that very well of there, there's so many different things you could do, um, whether it's ride-alongs. Or what I would even suggest is working with nonprofits as a volunteer, talking with disaster survivors, understanding that stress, helping them out. I remember uh, when I was with the Red Cross, uh, they're not a sponsor. Like Georgetown's not a sponsor, but they should be. I'm going to send this to Georgetown. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I was with the Red Cross, and I remember going out. My, my first couple events were with, with fires. Uh, a, a family lost a home in a fire. Uh, or, and then we had to deal with wildfires. And we worked a lot with the first responders, the actual firefighters there. And seeing their temple and like, talking to them and seeing them in that response, even though I couldn't go into the house because I, you know, I wasn't a firefighter at that point, I, I couldn't, I, I could uh, start to understand their perspective. They do speak a different languages. Emergency managers use acronyms like out the yin yang. I mean, it is the worst. <laughs> uh, and yet we can be all talking about the same thing and have completely different languages of what that means, what that definition even means. I remember doing that with GIS on the national team. GISers and an ops chief were saying the same things, but they meant totally two different things. And having be able to bridge that gap between doing operations before and starting to do GIS, I was able to kind of bring that together. And that's that's not bad on either of them. It's just it's just the language of what they're operating in. So um, I, I would again suggest volunteering. And then you're right, as you go higher up in government especially at the federal level, you start to become more and more pigeonholed uh, of what you're supposed to be focusing on. There's so many different uh, groups involved. And uh, county level, man, my hat off to you guys because we go down there and all of a sudden you're doing hazard mitigation. You're doing, you know, response. You're you're supposed to understand recovery from an expert level and how all those systems work together, even finance, um, and to be able to address all those different things great place to get uh, additional experience um, or, or to, uh, to, to gain experience as an emergency, as a complete emergency manager. Um, and we, we did talk about Georgetown a lot already, um, but I'm going to talk about it again because, uh, like I said, I'm going to reach out to these guys. But uh, Georgetown provided you and myself uh, a, a learning environment that integrated a little bit about a little bit with um, what we called intensives at the time. I think they use a different term now, but basically we'd go out for a week at a time to do these different sites that either were practicing emergency management. Um, like we went to the fire service college up in uh, the UK where they were doing training there for urban search and rescue, or we went down to new Orleans. And so what did these experiences provide you and, and why do you think that, or how do you think that impacted your career? I would say that the experiences, at least for me, made made the program and were hugely impactful for the career as a whole. 
Side note that still correlates, I saw on Facebook earlier, memories reminded me that it was four years ago today that I submitted my capstone. Oh, so. <laughs> wait, wait, we have a cheering button. Do you hear that? Do you hear the cheering button? Yeah, yeah, we're all happy for you there. That's awesome. So it's just an you know, amazing full circle that in just four short years being here now is just super awesome. But the, the intensives just, they provided so much because it really took the book learning and made it come alive because you were actually able to interact on such a deeper level with subject matter experts, with being in locations that had been heavily impacted by either, you know, disaster or, you know, where, where we went out to Livermore that were leading in the field for what we were studying. We're just having that hands-on connection, just, you know, that was invaluable for, for, for me and you know getting that wide range of going from with our readings and some of our studies from like that 10,000 foot view of really getting the academic level and then getting into it into the weeds just you know you can't there's no way you can replicate that in a book but to be able to be there and then to learn together yeah. because you know doing online learning is a fantastic tool but there is absolutely something to be said too for the personal connections so to be able to get together and as much as no one likes a group project, you know, having to be put in those types of situations to grow together, especially because we were such a varied bunch in a really cool way. You know, so many of us came oh. from so many different backgrounds, along with the folks that were teaching us that to, you know, put all those heads together in the same space was just awesome. And to see, you know, the path that others had taken that had led them there and, and learn from them what you know was also out there that I may not have known about that was huge too because I really only knew about emergency management really from that response side mm -hmm. so you know I, I knew the other phases of emergency management and those things but you know my my vision line had always been like a little bit of preparedness planning and then response with being on the ambulance so we went you know to New Orleans in December 2015 which was just 10 years after Katrina and getting to see where they were with recovery and and all the things that have happened in the decade since and and really understanding that as much as it's spoken about that you know recovery is not one of those snap finger things but that you know saying that recovery can take you know 18 months to two years is actually really underestimating it yeah that's a way of off yeah. <laughs> to see areas that that 10 years later were still you know they area parts of those areas were healing which was awesome but still seeing some that were very blighted and i mean and directly related to the storm for no other reason than just like how difficult it can be to go through those recovery steps and some of the excellent lessons learned and some of the horrible pitfalls along the way you know that completely changed things for me to really get that better understanding of you know like i said being a paramedic part of you always thinks okay response response is where it's at for emergency mm -hmm. management it's all about you know saving yeah. property saving lives but when you look at that bigger holistic picture that, you know, recovery, that's your new normal. That's what you have to deal with, you know, for the rest of, you know, your time. And that was, you know, a huge eye opener for me. Yeah, we talk so much about life saving, life sustaining in, uh, in the response uh, atmosphere. That it, it is one thing that was eye opening to me specifically related to the, the 10 years post Katrina was the emotions the passion mm -hmm. behind people still that high that that many years later. And it, it makes sense. I mean, we, we went into homes where the, they literally lost lives in, in their family. And so talk about it, an internal impact, you know, for, for that family. And so, of course, they're going to, to think about this event probably for the rest of their life. And um, it'll take years to, to go through their own recovery process, let alone if they don't even have the resources or understand how complicated those systems are. I mean, talk about a great call out for us in our field as we're talking about policy, as we're talking about these systems in recovery, county level emergency management, state level emergency management, federal especially. As we're talking about these systems, we need to figure out how to help people better at the local level uh, recover faster. And I, the, part of the reason why we have the name Disaster Tough is we don't want people to even be in that disaster. But if they are in disaster, to have every tool capable to actually fight back that storm that's going to come into the life. Um, and so that's, a, again, another call out for hazard mitigation, which you have a lot of experience in now, too. And so I just want to ask you about that. Like, 
with hazard mitigation, emergency managers, especially at that county level, every county in the U.S. requires a hazard mitigation plan if they want grants from FEMA. And so working in hazard mitigation, what would you tell those emergency managers who have been tasked with creating a hazard mitigation plan? How do they how do they do that better? Or what are some of those key things that they need to include into that plan? I think the biggest thing for making it better is, you know, there's still requirements when you write it of certain things that FEMA has to see, which is normal, but that make it something you're going to use. Because when I was in hazard mitigation, you know, a lot of times some of the counties and they were awesome folks, the, you know, love them to death, but they would joke about their plan update being, well, got to, you know, put my, you know, back on the bookshelf, my dust collector's good mm. to go. And yep. A brick. It, yep. <laughs> right. You know, you know, my bookend is holding up all my other books kind of thing. And it's, I can understand why, because some of it, when you write any kind of these major plans can be cumbersome, but the inherent nature, especially when you're focusing down on your action steps. So when the, the parts that FEMA is looking with a forward lens on where, you know, you've already told us what your vulnerabilities are because you have to include a hazard analysis with it. What are you going to do about it? There's so much now that in a great way, FEMA's putting an emphasis on wanting communities to look into that you really need to, to double down on, you know, maybe you can't do the $3 million drainage project, but there are a lot of other smaller projects that, especially with the FEMA reimbursement that you'll get for doing the grants, you know, every community can do even, and that's something that came out of Hurricane Michael that was actually kind of cool is that a lot of these small, I mean, small towns, I mean, towns that don't have a scanner, they're still using a fax machine, you know, mm. towns, just tiny, tiny towns. They were realizing that, hey, even we can do some good things for our community with mm. getting some weather radios, or we can get tornado sirens that we've never had, where, you know, be willing to look into it. Because a lot of what gets put out there by FEMA, and I love it because they're these incredible projects with the amazing engineering and, you know, these multi-million dollar projects that, especially for large communities, are going to be wholly life-changing in future disasters when they're completed. And I think that chases away a lot of communities from really looking mm. into hazard mitigation, and it kind of keeps them just, well, we'll update the plan because we know that we're vulnerable to floods and tornadoes, and we'll know we'll update this because they think that, well, if I'm not doing one of those multi-million dollar plans, you know, there's really nothing for me when there's a very wide breadth of what's, there's still very specific things that FEMA will approve, but that list is growing of what communities can do. And even those small things can absolutely save lives. We had a, you know, a couple communities while I worked at the state who came to us and said, hey, you know, so I'll let you know, we finished our our generator project because one of the projects you can do with FEMA funding is to get emergency backup generators for your water systems, mm. sewage systems, fire stations, police stations, you know, your critical facilities. Right after they'd finished that project, they had a severe thunderstorm come through and the fire station kept power, you know, for the first time. Well, That's other awesome. buildings around it didn't. Generator kicked on and they were able to go out and respond to calls or you know, other counties that similarly, you know, they had a tornado warning right after that. And they had their siren in place, you know, for the first time and were able to warn residents who had never would have had that additional layer of, of warning protection before. So it's looking at it past, it's become one of FEMA's favorite buzzwords right now, um, understandably, because of the, you know, the impact of hazard mitigation is not just building back, but it's, if it's tied to a disaster, it's either building back better or doing something that's going to reduce future problems. So you do have to, to balance that forward facing when there are budget restrictions and other things, but what you gain in the long term, that has to be the, you know, what you hold on to as the main focus of, you know, this is actually going to in a tangible way, because that's a big part of it with the monetary attachment. This is tangibly going to improve our community for the better. So to, to remember that it's, it's not just a FEMA requirement, but that even if you can't do the most grandiose project, there are absolutely things that your community will benefit from. Yeah, sometimes it's all about the details, right? Like, um, man, you, you have two train of thoughts there, and I want, I want to hit them on both. Emergency managers hate the phrase, it's never going to happen to me, <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And then, like, how many times, like, oh, I thought it wasn't going to happen to me, and then, you know. Uh, pandemic is a great example of that. How many times mm -hmm. have you seen on the news somebody mocking it and then, you know, being negatively impacted by it? 
and so like that, that situation awareness is changing. But I think in emergency management, our version of that is we've always done it like this. Yes. That's that's <laughs> our version of it's never going to happen to me. Well, we've always done it like this. That that means then you know you're rejecting um, you know possibly more life saving, more life sustaining work, and a hazard mitigation plan, a true sense of a hazard mitigation plan, uh, really addresses those things. Um, but as as we're talking about budget constraints and it's never going to happen to be mentality. As we're collaborating with those communities, schools, uh, businesses, uh, you know, other agencies, for example, how do you or how would you go about helping emergency managers who are associated with those groups to convince leadership to to switch their budget to spend the the time and money to create an actual hazard mitigation plan and then spend the money to actually mitigate some of those hazards? I mean, that is that is a really hard uh, thing to overcome for emergency managers. How would you go about it? That is an incredibly hard sell. I mean, that hands down from the, my time with the state to even now, it's very hard when something is not directly in front of you to to think it's going to be an issue when you can identify seven other issues that you know are on the table at that moment. So yeah. for some communities, the best time to do it is unfortunately after something happens. So like I said, I mean, that's not going to happen to every community at the same time. But like I said, came out of Hurricane Michael, where suddenly communities were able to take that stance because the emergency managers were, be able to, were able to say, who would have ever thought we'd have, you know, category three hurricane winds inland Georgia, nowhere near the coast. So, yeah. you know, trying to capitalize on a terrible situation to try to turn something long-term more positive out of it is huge. And it doesn't have to be something as major as Hurricane Michael, even if it's just, you know, a storm that comes through and knocks out power at your fire station for a couple hours, just local to you, that's still a huge burden that you can take and, and really use that, that evidence-based, you know, approach to help. And in a lot of ways too, I think now come out of the pandemic because vision is more tuned towards emergency management and public health. This is a good time to start having those conversations where you can start to show some of the data. And even if it's not direct to your community, you know, as emergency managers, be good discipline, you know, be good disciples of the discipline. Look for communities in similar size to yours that have had, you know, major benefits from doing a hazard mitigation project. The biggest thing is really being able to show the proof. You know, when there's so much yeah. going on and so many different entities vying for attention and for funding, you really have to be able to come with good evidence, even if it's not direct community-based evidence for you, but you can show that connection of, hey, you know, we have this money that kind of, you know, we're up in the air on if we're going to reallocate it or if it's going to stay in this budget, why don't we keep it here and look what we can do with it? Because look how much it helps, you know, community XYZ save money. And, you know, we're a community just like them who are at risk for, for these kind of things. You know, we fall in the same kind of area, same kind of climate, whatever, really make it come alive. Because otherwise it just kind of seems like a, you know, a vague exchange of, like you said, oh, you know, that never happens that way, or it's never going to happen here. You've got to be able to tie it back to something that's personally important in your community in some way. Because if you can't make it personal to these groups or, you know, whether it's the board of commissioners to your county manager, city manager, whomever, if they can't see that connection, it's going to keep going back to the bottom of the line. Yeah. I had uh, speak, oh man, this the other day, somebody told me that they didn't want to wear a mask because they didn't choose to wear a mask because it was like mandated. And yeah, uh, <laughs> my response was, uh, did you get a choice in the seatbelt law? No. Okay. Well, have you ever regretted wearing a seatbelt? Like if you didn't get in an accident, were you still okay that you wore your seatbelt? Yeah, it was fine. And like once that kind of clicked, it was like, oh, okay, this isn't a big deal. Like, yeah, it takes two seconds to put on a mask. Uh, you know, I'm like, like right here, right? Like, boom, I'm covered. Uh, to walk out of here. Yeah. Uh, and so like, just like comparing it to something that they can understand Again, I think as our field is changing from, you know, uh, from one aspect to maybe more evidence-based or data, uh, that's very good for the field because that changes the leadership's mindset from you're a doomsday prepper, an extremist, to, oh, you actually are more looking at the sciences. And comparing it to them, I would say we work with politicians so much 
and people who are in highly political atmospheres. I mean, dealing anything with the public obviously will put you in that atmosphere. Uh, the thing that has been most successful for me is talking about dollars. And then the second most important thing to me is how will this negatively impact image? Will you have to be mm-hmm. on a camera and have to explain to your community why you didn't put in uh, tornado sirens when it was a grant, when it could have been free to do so? And I have seen a lot of um, change in mindset when it says like, oh, okay, like we'll spend a hundred, th- oh, I mean the, the dam failures, we talked about this in Michigan. They knew about that problem since 1998 and the companies who ran the dam are getting sued now because a USGS, or uh, sorry, not USGS, um, Army Corps of Engineers and a couple other groups said, hey, it will cost, uh, I think $100 million to, to fix this problem. I could be wrong. It was like $100 million or um, something around that. And what happened was it was 10x. It was, you know, a billion plus. Uh, I, th- I think that was the numbers. You'll have to go back to the episode to check. Uh, but it shows like, okay, you have such a big hassle, and now they're actually shutting down those dams, and those companies are being sued for even more money. Like, you knew about this problem for, you know, 22 years, and now you have two dam failures, and this is what happens. And so that's why emergency management is important. That's why we do mitigation. So really excellent points. Um, so to switch to, to our last topic, we, we've been doing rapid fire now here for a few episodes. <laughs> We love rapid fire. We can just ask you some quick questions very quickly. Quick questions very quickly. That was a statement. Um, and so just like last three or four questions for you, yes, no kind of stuff, or just one word answers would be great. Uh, so let's do it. Ooh, I can play some music. Wait for it. Oh, my gosh. This is like their um, road comes with like standard music with this. I don't get this now. That's uh, awesome. The, the music's actually really cool. Uh, you yeah. came out to this. Yeah, right? I think they did an excellent <laughs> job. Also not a sponsor, but they should be. Uh, okay, so rapid fire. Okay, first things first, going to Georgetown, who's your favorite professor? Ah, I hate rapid fire because I like to talk too much. This is like the worst thing in the world for me. <laughs> That's funny. I loved almost all of them. Um, <laughs> me too. <laughs> I, think we can, I think like we know what we're talking about when we say that, when we said yep. almost all of them. Uh, that's hilarious. Um, oh, yeah. oh, I can't pick. I can't pick. I can't do it. I had, ni- um, I had nicknames for them all. Uh, I was sending out like memes for all, all of them. This isn't rapid fire, but for like <laughs> professor Johnson, which I, he actually will probably be coming on the show here later. Um, he was always Harry Potter into all the memes. I would have like the little like uh, lightning bolt. Um, we had Jolly Green Giant, which was Kirby. He would always wear that green sweater. Uh, yes, he was so tall. Yeah. Uh, they were all great. Uh, they really were. And, um, you know, e- even our guest speakers. Actually, I'll do, I'll do that. I'll be a little more uh, lenient on that one. Uh, name, name one of the guest speakers that like really stood out to you. All right, I can't do it in one word, but I will give a guest speaker. So when we were in New Orleans, um, and I feel badly because I was mispronounced her last name, Dr. Poe or Dr. Powell from um, Memorial Hospital spoke oh, to us right. about her experiences. And the book that was written about those experiences, Five Days at Memorial, was one of the you know life-changing emergency management books for me. And just being a healthcare provider, what she went through in that situation, Mm. you know, basically feeling completely abandoned, you know, with no real clear understanding of how they were going to get these critically ill people out and when, and then the decisions that had to be made and the extraordinary conditions they worked through, getting to see her live and in person and just see, you know, how she's able to now for something that can, you know, for so many folks leave such lingering scars and PTSD, she's able to give such amazing talks about her life and then just use it as an encouragement for others was just awesome. That was one of the coolest things for me to, to see someone that I had, you know, looked at as they're experiencing changing my perception of emergency management and even being a paramedic and then actually getting to see them live and in person and to speak to our class was just huge. Yeah. I remember, I mean, that Memorial hospital one, I remember uh, thinking like this, this right here is, what can never happen again, like catastrophic failure in a hospital and all the stories that were associated with that. 
um, that was really impactful for me. Oh man, I want to talk about, we should bring you on the show. We should just talk about the, uh, again, we'll talk about the intensives another time. We need uh, to have a Georgetown throwback episode and just go through all the awesome stuff oh my gosh. and all the speakers and, and everything. That would be fantastic. That'd be really great. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Uh, okay. So as an emergency manager, we're talking about the future of emergency management. What is one change you want to see? Still more collaboration, I'm trying to keep mm. it short. Um, yeah. I think we talk a lot about collaboration and, you know, that also goes into like the basis of communication, but there's still a lot of siloed actions where we put in our plan that we're going to collaborate. And then when it comes down to it, certain agencies and certain departments still either initially start by doing their own thing or a little bit slow to info share as things go. So really just, we understand how important it is, but it's still, it needs to actually happen in real time as well. Yeah, I think that's also a call out to the systems in place to allow that to happen. Uh, because in a response, people just want to make a decision. And we're all A-type personalities anyways, most of us. Mm-hmm. And so we just want to make the call right then anyways. So, yeah, good call out. Uh, okay, being, a, me, being an Italian like me, hey, uh, I, I got to know. <laughs> pasta or pizza? Yes. <laughs> that's the right answer. That is the right answer. Yes. Uh, that's hilarious. I thought you might say stromboli or something. Uh, that is the right cannoli, answer, though. Or, yeah, and cannoli, too. Oh, yes. my gosh. Uh, my All wife made homemade tomato sauce yesterday. Oh, so good. She's yes. a German, but she has definitely been integrated into the Italian family because uh, of that sauce. Anyways, okay. Uh, last question. Most important question of the entire podcast, of course. What is the number one emergency management podcast? Does Yes. I gotta do the cheering thing again. Uh, oh no, I was laughing. Oh shoot. Ah, uh, there we go. So good, so good. Uh, Disaster Tough podcast. Yes, thank you, Ashley. Thank you so much for coming onto the show. You're an awesome Absolutely. guest. Yeah, great guest, great topics. Hazard mitigation, switching between different fields. Those experiences as a paramedic, moving over to state and county. Uh, those different perspectives. The incredible uh in the incredible need for better data but also for field experience so get that field experience if you don't have that uh again thank you for giving us the green light on doberman emergency management everybody if you like this episode if you liked hearing from ashley if you want her to come back on the show which we want uh, please give us that five-star rating. Uh, subscribe, of course. Send us an email at info at dobermanemg.com. Or you can actually just follow us now on our new Instagram page, Disaster Tough Podcast, where we're providing lots of updates. We'll have stuff on Ashley there. Uh, so make sure you check us out, and we'll talk to you soon.